right. So welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I, I, I've been so curious and excited to see how this was going to unfold because I know that you're so yeah. part of so many projects and you have done so many things with your, your musical life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like it's it's kind of I'm at, I'm at a one project at a time pace right now. Like currently um, I have this thing going called 16 KVP Future Nostalgia which is like a, a project wherein I use the crappiest available MP3 compression, at least the crappiest available through like iTunes conversion rates, um, to create ambient music with that as a sort of deliberate texture, or at least the first album's ambient. I'm hoping the next couple will be in different genres. I'm trying to kind of see how that approach works in uh, various different genres. I don't know what the next one will be. Maybe folk, maybe metal, maybe dance music. I don't know. I, I, whatever I do next, I want it to be completely different from what I've done before. Yeah, because I, I think when I first met you, you were doing sort of stuff that was making that was reminding me of um, like uh, stuff more more like pop. Uh, I don't know if pop is really, but like, <laughs> well, it had vocals. It had on vocals, it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you were doing some like really hilarious stuff, some like satirical stuff. There's mm -hmm. uh, a lot of really like playing with um, lyrics. Yeah, yeah, that would have been the Anthony Hansen problem, which uh, was active from about like I want to say 2016 through to 2018. Yeah, so it was like a two-year project, I think. Um, although I'm. I'm I'm a little bit rusty on my dates, but yeah, that would have been my most like lyrically driven project. And then I think like at a certain point, just like I don't know, the approach exhausted itself. And I, I think what I was listening to was more sort of instrumentally driven and less sort of lyrical. And I think I just kind of had to honor what what was drawing me in, um, rather than just sort of playing a role that I thought was expected of me. Yeah, like what what excites you about um, ambient music? Um, well, I mean, it's interesting because you're asking me just as I'm kind of starting to transition away from that in terms of my own listening patterns. But okay. like, I think what sort of drew me to it was just, I mean, I'd been interested in it a long time. As long as I had been putting out stuff as the Anthony Hansen problem, I had been putting out stuff under the uh, project name Hansa as well. Um, and that was like, that was a purely ambient thing. And it's kind of like... I sort of grew up around that stuff. My dad was listening to sort of like, you know, he was an illustrator, so he'd put on what just sort of put him in the headspace to be creative. And so that means that like around the house, I'd hear things like Brian Eno or John Hassel or David Sylvian, and that sort of filtered in. So in a way, like ambient is sort of just kind of, it's where my roots are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of where the like, why the, you know, I mentioned that a shift happening. It's just, I, I think that with this latest project, I kind of like, between that and uh, wasn't postmodernism wonderful, which I released under the name Anthony Hansen, I kind of feel like I've said everything I need to say with that particular sort of like with within those particular genre constraints, and so now it's kind of like trying to find something else that feels, I guess, challenging or like you know sort of puts me a little bit out of my comfort zone. Yeah, where do you have any ideas of where you're going? <laughs> um. Which the is, this is a daunting question. I know. I know. I have no idea where I'm going <laughs> any any day. 
well, <laughs> the way I like to phrase it to people is that like I um, I have phases that are very much creation phases, and then I have phases that feel like research and development phases. And usually, I'll have the creation phase that leads up to sort of the release of an album. And then I'll have the research and development phase that follows where I'm kind of like figuring out, okay, what do I want to do next? And a lot of it just like depends on me sort of taking in new influences and like trying to find something that feels just exciting to me and out. Like I look for something that sounds like something I haven't heard before and on that level gets me kind of excited and makes me think, oh, I want to try that, you know, because like that's sort of how like being a music junkie is like that's how it's always been for me is that i'm always kind of looking for the new thing that will just make me go what the hell yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. what was the most recent thing you heard that made you go what the hell oh um i think well a couple of things first of all um there was this album uh below the house by planning for burial i was just going through a lot of like uh, a lot of releases tagged atmospheric sludge metal and that <laughs> one kind of stopped me in my tracks it's this uh, the, the guy himself is just one guy it's a one man project but he on his band camp he describes it as singer songwriter shit but with heavy guitars or something to that effect and it really like it's, it's very very kind of crushing heavy music but with a very kind of songwriterly bent to it and that whole album is kind of the lyrics like seem to frame a breakup but it's actually about him kind of breaking away from from his uh, addiction issues which i think was a really interesting way of framing the subject matter so that was one and actually the other album that really kind of like caught my caught my ears was also related to getting over addictions it's uh julian baker's first album sprained ankles um which i think was released in 2015 or so she's released a bunch of stuff since then um but she just does like very kind of it's slow, sort of melancholy-ish, slow core-ish folk music, but like, um, first of all, I mean, the like, the lyrics are just harrowing, and also it's, again, it's a case of a really interesting perspective, because she is um, a Christian socialist, and a lesbian, and like, she's talking about battling depression, and getting sober, but through the lens of like, Christian ideology, so like, literally just kind of like talking like this sort of open negotiation with god about like all the sort of like suffering she's going through which i haven't heard before i haven't heard people like talking about those subjects in that specific way yeah like i've known a few um a few lesbians who are christians i yes. feel like that as like just narrowing on all of those identities you listed I feel like that intersection is one that confuses me a lot, but it, it is common because like, you yeah. know, you grow up with, with a religion and, and then, you know, you don't have much control over who you love. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's just so interesting for me because I, I wasn't really raised religiously and mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of negative experiences with like Christianity in general. So yeah. for me, I was like, how does this compute? Why did you stick with it? But like, I would love to hear more. Uh, of those perspectives well I mean I, I think it's worth noting that like I think the fact that she identifies as like a Christian socialist specifically like you know is very much like she's very much at the intersection of like socialist ideology and like Christian faith and I think that that is like that informs her perspective a lot you know and that's I mean I don't claim to know like a whole lot about her aside from like things that I've read in like press releases and stuff but like yeah there's this um 
I don't know. I th- like I really find it interesting the way people sort of like work through I don't know the contradictions that like absolute faith kind of creates for you in terms of the fact that it's like I I I genuinely kind of believe that like you know one one can access things that feel divine but all we have are imperfect human mediums and ultimately the you know whatever works for you is what works mm-hmm. yeah it's funny you mentioned accessing the divine and i feel like that's the sense that i got from like that that <laughs> uh, first track that you laid down was yeah like it to me it feels very it feels very divine and no matter how you get there it that seemed that sort of like sense of awe and wonder and but like there's a lot of like you know high tempo things and then there's a lot of like slower melodic things and yeah. that combination seems very deliberate and i really like it um yeah well that's that's snowblind off of uh, the album wasn't postmodernism wonderful which i had referred to before um it's interesting like i had a bandmate who once said that you know tempo doesn't dictate how fast or slow uh, uh, a song feels you know it's mm-hmm. about kind of like there's a pulse that goes beyond just like what the tempo is because like if you know that is a fast song but that feels very slow there's that kind of push-pull effect um i don't know that i was necessarily looking to kind of it's interesting because if it's divinity it's secondhand divinity because it's basically me sort of like doing my take on like old 80s like new age music which is its own kind of like it's spiritual but it's also spiritual in this very almost kind of like I don't want to say schlocky way but like very almost kind of like there's a certain kind of like earnest chintziness to it that I think like again like the contradictions of that are really interesting to me where it's just kind of like well this is like clearly deeply felt and also just like maybe the tiniest bit silly i don't want to like you know put air quotes around what i do and have it all be kind of steeped in irony but like i think there there is a self-awareness there that like i just can never quite cancel out and i think that like extends to a lot of my music making process that's kind of why like i'm always incorporating things like tape textures or mp3 textures it's kind of like this weird sort of brechtian meta device where it's just sort of like okay but like at the end of the day this is just a song that you're listening to. Like the medium also like dictates the message as much as anything else, you know? And it's just kind of like you, I think you can deploy that self-awareness in a way that doesn't feel sarcastic or condescending. I don't think I'm the best judge of whether I do that successfully, but that's sort of what I'm attempting to do. Like just, you know, acknowledge that it's kind of like, again, imperfect mediums. It's not like the message is not going to come through a hundred percent clearly. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what makes it so nice and, and so like comforting because you know, you, you are using um, tapes and, and so that medium allows for that sense of like memory and nostalgia and exactly and being taken away in this sort of escapism type of feel. Yeah. And it's interesting because I kind of like I want to sort of play with the notion of nostalgia more and more as I go along in terms of the fact that it's kind of like, you know, so far I think I've released things where the like the nostalgic element is very comforting. But I also want to try and question that a bit, too, in terms of the fact that, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that we have like a culture that's almost like mired in nostalgia. It's like this idea that, you know, we are just like hooked on all things retro. And uh, to be honest, it's not the epidemic that I think people make it out to be in terms of the fact that, look, you had like 
centuries of just folk traditions and no one was complaining about <laughs> how things were going nowhere, you know? Like, this idea that everything has to be new is this very, like, modernist conceit that I think, you know, is ultimately sort of based more in, I don't know, like, like this idea that innovation is measured by quote-unquote newness. Like, I don't buy into that at all. But, like, at the same time, I do think it says very interesting things about a culture if, like, it is kind of constantly lionizing its recent past. Um, and I think that that extends beyond sort of the, the musical and artistic sphere. Like, I think it's, you know, a good lens to sort of analyze, like, where we are politically at the same time. Because I think, like, in any sort of culture where you have a rise of kind of, like, like hyper-conservatism, it is rooted in this idea of, like, weren't things better before? Wouldn't you like to go back to the way things mm -hmm. were before? It is the easiest political selling point because, you know, like... Well, there's no comparison, right? Like, if you're, like, in your 20s and 30s right now, you have no idea what it was like to be in your 20s and 30s, like, 50 years right. ago. Right, so it's easy for you to look back at that and think, like, oh, that that would have been such an amazing time to be alive. And, yes, it would have been in its own ways, just, like, now is amazing in its own ways. Yeah, but I mean, what's interesting is that you have people like middle age, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are also kind of like doing that a bit. I mean, it's interesting because like, you know, the like the boomer generation like had a mythology laid out for them from the beginning because, you know, it's like people talk about how like, you know, there, there's I'm not going to get into the whole millennials versus boomer <laughs> thing. Like it's 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 played out. Yeah, but like, I mean, argument, yeah, it's a tired but argument, but the point like the point i want to make is that it was kind of like you know they were raised with this whole mythology of youth culture that was sold to them and they kind of took that and ran with it because it was like you know they had that set up for them already right from the beginning and so much of their identity was based in the idea of sort of youth and i mean that narrative is also complicated by the fact that there were plenty of like boomer generation era like conservatives like people who like never bought into that from the beginning and were just like rich shitty people which i think there's always rich shitty people. there's always rich shitty people i think that like the diet it's it's unfortunate that i think the the uh narrative around a generation is often defined by its richest shittiest people <laughs> <laughs> you know like yeah, when like people how talk rich how shitty yeah well i think <laughs> when people talk about like like millennial narcissism for instance they're talking about like people who actually have the like privilege to be in positions of like I don't know, being influencers or whatever, like having that, like, you know, it, these are people who already have access to certain kinds of resources.
so I'm so relaxed right now. <laughs> 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 um, I I was curious what your process of music creation is like. I mean, I'm sure it's not unilateral, but in general. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it really varies from project to project. Um. I think if I'm doing if I'm doing a project that has lyrics in it, generally I'll start with, um, just like a phrase and it'll have like either an internal rhythm to it or like a vocal melody to it and like that'll be kind of like the foundation and from there I just sort of uh, build things around it usually I'll just like take either that phrase or some other sort of words as a prompt write stream of consciousness and then edit it together until it's something song like um, with musical stuff it's really just noodling around until I find some sort of theme or sound that interests me and then just sort of building it up from there um a lot of my a lot of my songs aren't like very kind of like sophisticated from a compositional standpoint like they're usually they usually stay within like a fairly simple chord range um and a lot of that yeah just does come out of the fact that like my i'll literally be like hey these two chords sound cool let's just sort of see how much we can pile on top of them. I think it just like stems from having a really like short attention span in, in the first place and just being like, well, you know, like the two chords sound good enough. Do I need two more? Not really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find yourself um, playing music that, so I, I find myself um, looking at music as a bit of a mirror to myself and, mm. and a way of, of sort of reflecting into how I'm feeling and, and what's been going on in my life. And then there's other times where music will be its own world and I'll like kind of be jumping into that world. Um, with that yeah. last piece, do you feel like that was something that was like emotionally connected to what you've been going through at some point or, or do you think that it's like it's, it's its own universe that you've jumped into? In its original form, it was definitely an escapist thing, um, as most of my stuff is. Um, that's the, that song is called like Access to Information, and it's from the 16KBP Future Nostalgia album. Um, and I think when I played it right now, something more personal came out. Um, I mean, like... It felt personal. Like It, it yeah. felt like there was some strong emotion, not necessarily of something that is that happened but like yeah it felt like there was a strong emotional connection yeah i mean it, you know it's and it's it's sort of like there's that kind of like you know i'm i'm glad that everyone felt relaxed and tranquil at the end of it i was in turmoil while i was doing it <laughs> but i mean i i like again you know, the I angst I of like the <laughs> performer you always have like some some sort of like yeah. whole other world that's happening in your head and everyone else is just seeing like a different sort of facade right because you're doing a good job yeah <laughs> i guess that. i mean I, f I feel like it like it's a reflection <laughs> of me most people see me as like a fairly like i don't know sort of calm easy to get along with person um and i think that's just like that is true but there's there's more to it if you should people decide to sort of look past it um i definitely feel like in in sort of subsequent works i think i maybe want to make sort of the subtext more text in terms of the fact that it's just like i do worry a little bit i think when you're when you're doing kind of like ambientish stuff um there's the potential to kind of like have your emotions be turned into wallpaper mm. um and i think it's kind of like i mean that was that was sort of the like 
you know, going back to that that older band, the Anthony Hansen problem, like that was very much a kind of case of grabbing the audience by lapels and being like, you cannot ignore me now. And I'm wondering if maybe like the sort of balance is about to kind of, the pendulum's about to swing back in that particular direction because I think that it's kind of like, it is, it's nice to create things that I think provide a sort of like escape for the listener and like give people that comfort but I think in terms of just sort of what I'm observing in the world around me I don't know that that's necessarily something that I can I don't know that continuing to do that would feel honest to how I'm sort of perceiving perceiving things at this particular moment because mm-hmm. I really like the imagery of, of your emotions as wallpaper <laughs> if your emotions were wallpaper what would it look like <laughs> oh Jesus! Um, can I pass on that question? Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, th- I guess like something that's kind of like there is uh, there is sort of a I don't know a sort of contradictory element in terms of the fact that I don't necessarily like exposing too much of myself through the ar- through the art in the sense that like I'm not and this is weird because I was just praising albums that had like a confessional element, but like. I personally am uncomfortable putting myself in that particular position uh, just by virtue of the fact that, like, you know, I feel like, like, I'm acutely aware of the, the fact that, like, putting myself in kind of a more confessional mode or in, in, a, in a mode that kind of, like, exhibits my personal experience in a more s- kind of subjective way, you know, it... <sighs> There's something that I like to call the kind of like uh, trauma industrial complex where it's Uh very much like I think that it's just depending on your positionality, it can really just become sort of like grist for the mill. There are really people who just, you know, and I know I know people personally for whom it's just like, you know, everyone else's particular subjective experience of like pain or angst or misery in art just gets kind of like turned into this one gray blob that's just like oh this is what i'm gonna put on when i'm sad you know ignoring the particularities of each lived experience which you know i can't blame listeners for doing that but as an artist the idea of just becoming someone's kind of like uh yeah again there's that idea of potentially becoming emotional wallpaper and i mean it's like i know i shouldn't fixate on that because like you can't you know you can't control how people receive your work once it's out there like it doesn't i don't think it belongs to you anymore once it's there but at the same time it's just kind of like the idea that i could put out something intensely personal and just have it kind of be almost whitewashed is just like it weirds me out more than anything (laughs) you know it just like yeah it, it like it the idea of it feels really strange to me yeah, I mean it. It is super strange because like you're you're doing something that's intensely like if if that is what you're doing, mm. you're putting all of your most intensely personal things um, and creating a performance out of it, and then yeah. people who don't know your story know nothing about where it's coming from, are then listening to it and putting their own story on it. Yeah, and I think I see that most it's acutely happen. Yeah, I see that most acutely happen in the way that like like look at the way that sort of like like sort of the commerce the business around something like hip-hop where it's sort of like you know you have these stories that are like hyper specific to like a cultural context and a you know a kind of cultural baggage that's very much based in kind of you know rooted in oppression essentially 
and it more or less like the 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 biggest consumer base for hip hop now is white people, and like particularly I think like white people of a certain kind of general class background. And uh, I mean, you know, this is just from my observations, but like. I think there's very much that kind of exoticization that happens and you're sort of like vicariously living through something that might as well be a fantasy to you for how foreign it is to you, but is in fact very real, you know, and that's, yeah, it's so, it's so odd how these things happen. So you might as well just create the escapism fantasy that you want, the 80s uh, dreamscape (laughs) 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 that you wish to escape in. Yeah. Or I don't know. I think there's I think there's the al- the other way too, where it's just like you know, sometimes people will put out stuff that's so confrontational that like you can't possibly like water it down. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where that's where you get kind of like the real fringes, and like I don't know if that's a step I'm necessarily like willing to take, but I can at least sort of admire people who sort of like work in that particular in that particular vein i feel like i do not quite that extreme but like i feel like a lot of my music is very like in your face sad or upset and um i think for me it's just really cathartic and people seem to like it so i keep doing it for sure (laughs) like there is something to be said for mutual catharsis i guess i guess that's it it's like i want to make a i want to make a distinction between like stuff that is mutually cathartic and based on mutual experience and stuff that just sort of enables a kind of wallowing you mm-hmm. know what i mean because like i think that there is like there's a big difference between i, I was talking to someone about like uh that huge that song that's huge right now which is um oh fuck what like it's it's by that guy Lewis Capaldi. It's like that big hit. You hear it whenever you leave the house, and it's just like I it's like this try very to like keep it out of my ears. I mean, it's very <laughs> anonymous. It'll just pass you by. But like, it's a breakup song, and he's very emphatic, and he's singing slightly out of his range. But like, the lyrics start at "I'm sad" and end in "I'm at at I'm sad," and there's no kind of like there's no anything in between. It's just mm-hmm. and you know you get I'm I'm sort of like almost like regurgitating points I've heard other people say about the song. So like, this is, these are not my own original thoughts, but like just, just as a talking point, I'm saying that like, you know, it's, you don't get a sense of why he's sad about the person who broke up with him or what it is about this person that was so special to him in the first place. You know, it's just like, I don't have, I don't have a girlfriend (laughs) anymore. And like, to be honest, like, my general reaction to that with the baggage of however many decades of pop music history behind me is who cares? Like Mm. who gives a shit? (laughs) Like I'm like, I'm sorry. I know that that's a very callous way to respond to like what might be a very genuine expression of like heartache or whatever, but it's not where you're at. Yeah. It's, it's not where I'm at. I just like, I, maybe it's just like I'm getting curmudgeonly, but like, (laughs) I just, I, I want, I want stories with detail and nuance to them at this point. And like, I don't necessarily, yeah. And just to bring it back to what I was saying before, and I don't necessarily want to be like putting my emotional reality out there. If the only thing I can think to say about it is again, I'm sad because why should anyone care? Mm -hmm. But uh, people do care about your latest release, and there has been <laughs> the praise of good it, segue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell tell me again, and and those oh at home, yeah, uh, okay. 
So what exactly happened with your new album? Um, what happened was, so we were recording this on, uh, what's the date today? It's Sunday the uh, 19th? 19th, yeah, I want to yeah. say, yeah, it's Sunday the 19th. So on Friday the 17th, I want to say, like, maybe 19 people had downloaded my album total in the few weeks it had been out, and which is pretty standard for me. I don't necessarily get, like, a huge download tally. The next morning... I it had skyrocketed at at this particular point it's at like 71 downloads or so so it like it just sort of exploded in like a day in like a day and like um and then someone else was hailing it as like the 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 album of of well he what he was saying what he was saying is that like so this is uh this is Vito James who runs DMT Tapes uh Florida which is like a huge vaporwave label they have like 800 something releases out there and like we've we've been in sort of personal contact and he put out this this list where he was saying like yeah this is the you know this is going to be one of the albums that shapes the sound of the decade and it's like okay cool no, no pressure. pressure yeah no pressure, no pressure. just uh, you know sound of the decade yeah but that's that's wild to me because i've never gotten such effusive praise like i've had like people tell me that they personally like my stuff but i don't necessarily have people saying like i think this is the future of music like that's a pretty that's a like that's kind of a quantum leap in terms of like you know just levels of of acknowledgement and and acclaim so especially from someone that you so I, I admire him yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely that guy's got great ears um i think i think the thing too is that it's just kind of like uh this this is so yeah this is proving to be like my most kind of popular release um and like is continuing to gain momentum and fi- in spite of the fact that i'm like not really doing any kind of huge promotional push i'm just like doing what i usually do which is like talk about it on social media and like yeah it's and put it, it on the internet and then the internet yeah. has it and <laughs> it does the internet thing yeah exactly <laughs> i feel like at this point in my career that like putting out albums is like i mean it's a lottery at this point like you mm-hmm. you are essentially entering like a lottery of attention like just because it's kind of like it really so much of it is luck so much of it is luck yeah, how does that change, like the the changing landscape of, of the music industry? How do you, how does that change your approach to it, and like how you feel about it? Well, I think by the time I actually became more active in the industry, the change had happened. It was already there. Like you know, I mean, I might have grown up around, like I grew up around, like just when the label system was starting to kind of fall apart. Like for instance, you know, um, I was in grade six in the year to like the years 1999 to 2000 and Napster was just just on the horizon you know like and so most of my adult life um I like has been throughout the collapse of the record industry like it's there there's never been a time where it's been doing well where I wasn't like a child so it's kind of just been like that's just sort of been the ambient reality all around me is just kind of this thing where it's like well probably not probably not going to make any money off of this Mm -hmm. like that's just kind of the the reality of it and so i've never i i've never felt like there's been any shift since i started from you know to the end but i mean definitely i think i may be the last 
I don't know, one of the last generations who grows up, who grew up with like the only kind of musical mythology being like you join a band and that band gets successful and then you just conquer the world, you know? <laughs> like I don't, I don't think that's what people are growing up with now. Yeah, I don't think there's a narrative that is continuing in any capacity really. Like th I think there's a few people, a few lucky um, bands that do have that kind of narrative, but I think it's really rare now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, th I think the thing about it is that like, um, you know, it, it is partly just like the commerce aspect of, but I mean like, rock culture has just fucked itself as far as I'm concerned like I really feel like as soon as you had like I feel like what happened is rock culture felt the threat of other genres overtaking it and sort of almost reverted to this very fundamentalist stance which happens when anything is threatened like that's how religious fundamentalism pops up is like you feel like your way of life is threatened so you start like following things to the letter as like a way of like trying to preserve it out of fear and what that what that essentially means is that i really feel like it kind of split rock into two camps where it's like on the one hand you have people like like mitski or jason or like you know any number of like indie rock acts who are kind of you know like like women and women of color like are front and center and their experiences are front and center in the narrative and they're doing really interesting things musically and it's resonating you know with not necessarily like stadium level audiences but like you can see the ripple effect that's sort of extending outwards and then you just have people who like want everything to sound like led zeppelin would you like to play another song yeah i actually want to try something a little bit different which is i think i'm going to sort of improvise something from scratch because that's generally how i compose things and so yeah usually when i'm in a new space i'll just bring a tape recorder with me and just noodle around on something and oftentimes that first thing winds up being what's on the album so i'm gonna see if i can rig up something like that right now
Rock in general, yeah. Just an endless, endless source of fascination for me. Yeah, I think the last time that rock had a bit of a unified front was in the 90s. So that, was, that wasn't necessarily the last time that, like, you know, I used to have this idea that, like, rock died when, like, alternative rock sort of, like, petered out a bit in the mid-90s. I'm a little more generous with that timeline now because I kind of see how it's, like, you know, as much as I was sort of loath to admit it at the time, like... I feel there like is, rock was kind of reborn in like the like early 2010s. I think also even in the 2000s interesting stuff was happening. Like I was saying like you know when I was going through high school I would have never ever ever given a band like My Chemical Romance a chance but like you know it's like going back to that more recently I was like oh I see what people liked about this and like actually you know like maybe the whole sort of emo scene thing has not aged very well but like that band in particular i can be like okay like this was this was clearly like a kind of like flashpoint for a lot of people this was a catalyst for a lot of things that came afterwards this and they were a mainstream band they were a mainstream band that actually had a huge reach had a huge influence and like were incredibly important to a lot of people you know it wasn't just this like passing fad that you know me and my kind of more more metalhead leading friends were just kind of like dismissing outright you know there was and so I, and I'm sure like retrospectively I'll be able to see other things like that but like the fact that there is no rock mainstream right now as far as I can tell like is going to make it kind of harder to sort of figure out what the narrative is there um, this, this music critic I like named Jonathan Bogart was saying that like where rock is now is more or less where jazz was in the 80s where it's kind of like innovation is still happening but it's mainstream iterations will never be cool again oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, rock will never be cool again well, well i mean no but just like you know <laughs> just like the stuff that charts is probably going to be crap like yeah. yeah though i feel like i feel like mitski specifically like when you mentioned her mm -hmm. like she i feel like that music came out of nowhere and is so good and so weird and I love it, but it's yeah. still like mainstream enough that it's like palatable to the masses. So it's supported really well as well. Because the weirdness isn't like it's subtle. She's not drawing attention to it, but like it's when you actually start to play the songs, you're like, what the hell is going on here? Cause you have these incredibly unconventional chord structures and then these melodies on top that also are incredibly counterintuitive. And she's often like, playing thing like alternating the measures of things in ways that make no sense and like yeah there's just this there's so much kind of creativity on display and it really like gives light to this idea that oh everything's been done before well no like this is a prime example of how you can still work innovation into like otherwise conventional kind of songwriting you know because it's still verse chorus verse you know it's still it's still rock and it still has like a pop song structure but it's it's tweaked so slightly. I think I remember reading somewhere that she was in like a math rock band before. Oh, cool. I feel like any time that someone is in any way connected to math rock, I suddenly respect them more. Yeah, that I have a lot of respect for math rock. I have a lot of respect for it. I can't say I'm a huge listener. But Me neither, really. Like, I knew some some uh, friends who were in math rock bands, and I went to see their shows, and yeah. I loved it because I I felt like it, 
math rock experience live is like yeah amazing yeah yeah i think it definitely works better in the live Ooh. arena because you can kind of just see what they're doing you're like oh my gosh mm-hmm. like it, there's a bit of a like watching a fireworks display yeah. aspect to it it's amazing yeah <laughs> yeah my my friends and well my uh evan magoni who is the drummer in the anthony hansen problem is in uh, a math rock band with uh, another friend of mine andrew miller called cake function and they've just they've just started up, and I'm like really excited to see what they're what they're gonna do. Cool. Do you have uh, any plans to do like live performances, or is that kind of a, a thing that you're not into right now? I would really like to get back into live performing, um, but it's a matter of figuring out just how I want to kind of take things to the live arena. Um, I think I think it would be interesting to kind of like the. The thing that makes the most sense to me right now would be to kind of like get an ensemble together that's more skilled in kind of just this the improvisational stuff like really just kind of going out on a limb and just like because i think that that's that's sort of what holds my attention if like the thing about like you know my old band was the fact that like we would try to do something slightly different every time like playing the same set list over and over again would just eventually like bore me to tears so we would kind of build in parts where like we didn't know what we were going to do from night to night like there would be certain songs that would be the same but like there would be other parts where it's just like i don't know yeah i feel like i have very competing uh tendencies because i i my favorite part about music is when it's spontaneous in the moment and you're just creating something Mm, that is mm. just magically coming together through like the will of god or whatever (laughs) you know (laughs) and i I find that's amazing and, and my favorite experience of music but then when I'm in a band setting, I find like I really kind of impose like, well, this is how the song is. Mm, it was perfect that way. That's how we do it. And I, yeah. I have to really trust the people that I'm playing with to be able to deviate from that. That's interesting because like, yeah, I have a completely different approach. Like as a band leader, I'm very kind of like, you know, I do have fairly like I have the parts written out. But like as soon as they have it down, it's kind of like alter it as you will. Um, you know, like take it and run with it. And I think I've been sort of lucky in that, like a lot of the people I've worked with, they kind of, you know, they have a sense of, I think, restraint. Like when I was working with Evan and, and Noemi, who is like the original bassist for the, for the Anthony Hansen problem, like, you know, they were very much about kind of like doing more with with less it's like and evan is like you know he is someone who like plays math rock and plays these incredibly complicated things but he really reined himself in and he'd be like okay i'm just gonna like play this four on the floor kick snare pattern and then just sort of go all out anytime there's a chance to do a fill and like it was i think that sense of like leaving space but still kind of having fun with it like that's i think that's the sweet spot to some extent like you know when like i i like working with people who you know can play but know when not to play absolutely i think that's a very very important thing to be able to do as a musician know when to and when not to play 